Welcome to Into the Fire, a Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series. Hello, everybody. I'm Jerome Davis. I'm the Artistic Director of Burning Coal Theater Company, and I'd like to welcome you to Into the Fire, the Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series on all things theatrical. Today, we have um, an old friend, uh, Anel Sheline, joining us. Anel uh, went to school here in the Triangle um, and um, worked a little bit with Burning Coal and also had some uh, connections to some of the other uh, schools and companies in the area. And so given that this is our 25th anniversary season, I thought it would be interesting to look back on a few people who had come through our doors over the years uh, and talk with them a little bit about that and about what they're doing now in their lives. So Anel, first of all, um, thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jerry. It was great to get the message from you and congrats on your 25th anniversary at Burning Coal. This is very exciting. It's amazing how far desperation will take you. Tell us uh, what your start out. Let's start out with your uh, days here in the Triangle. You were not uh, born here, right? You're from out west, I believe. That's true. Yeah, I, I was born out in New Mexico, but grew up in North Carolina in Durham, and my my parents are still there. Um, and attended high school at, at Jordan Public High School in Durham, and got into theater through Hope Hines, who at the time was the theater director and teacher at Jordan. That's uh, that's where you and uh, Anna Radulescu connect. Uh, Anna studied under Hope. Uh, at her um, high school, which is, Anna, what is your um, your high school? Your, uh, it was it? actually, uh, uh, I studied under Hope when she moved to e, uh, East Chapel Hill High School. East so Chapel I remember Hill. the Jordan, the Jordan East Bridge. Yes. Right. Yeah. Anna, yeah. Anna. She's been it and she's still at East. Yeah. She's, she's been there for a while now. We, Jordan is, really uh, lost a very important person when, when she moved to East, but I, absolutely. I, I she's been happy there. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, for the podcast uh, audience, Anna is joining us just uh, because it's her first month here at Burning Coal as Associate Artistic Director. And so she's just joining uh, to listen in on this one. But um, Anel, um, so you worked with Hope uh, at Jordan High School. And uh, where was uh, university for you? Um, so I went to NYU's uh, Gallatin School, thought about uh, doing Tisch because I was initially really interested in in pursuing a career in theater, but decided that um, Gallatin, which is an interdisciplinary program, probably made more sense. And upon getting to New York, um, I, I arrived in New York City right when the Republican National Convention was holding their you know, this was 2004. So right before Bush was reelected in 04. And I remember almost getting arrested. A bunch of students were protesting the RNC. Um, and and this, this for me was kind of coming straight out of some, some amount of sort of limited high school level political activism that I'd been involved in, um, primarily through theater and, and primarily through hope, honestly. Um, she and I was fairly clueless at the time, um, but but Hope was was really much more involved in um, a lot of our I think her her students sort of focus on on what was going on politically and what what U.S. foreign policy 
um, was doing to the rest of the world. I was actually, um, I learned that 9-11 had happened in Hope's class. Uh, a colleague, Josh Gunn, um, who's remained active in theater, walked in and uh, said someone had bombed the Pentagon. And then we turned on the radio and learned it wasn't a bomb, it was a plane, and it wasn't just mm-hmm. the Pentagon. Um, so that was that was my first year working with Hope that September. And from there, you know, the, the rest of my time in high school um, was involved with uh, the, the work that she was doing. So you uh, you got to New York uh, within a year or so of the um, the invasion of Iraq, uh, which which came out of um, uh, 9-11 for reasons that continue to mystify, um, uh, given that the Iraqis had nothing whatsoever to do with 9-11. Was that something that you were conscientious of uh, or was it uh, more broadly speaking, the the politics of the Bush administration or what were the protests about? I guess that would be my question. Yeah, so I mean, I I went in 2003 to the big anti-war protest that happened in D.C. Um, in January before the war started in March. Um, went up with my parents um, and um, maybe some other friends, um, possibly organized by their church, which is uh, the Eno River Unitarian Fellowship. I think we may have gone up with them. Um, But when I got to, I mean, I think essentially, you know, the the RNC was held in New York because 9-11 had happened three years before. And Rudy Giuliani, you know, was America's mayor. And um, (laughs) right. Um, And, you know, I think maybe Bush and company didn't quite realize the level of uh, antipathy among New Yorkers um, for their whole agenda. Um, but I just, I mean, I remember in those days um, questioning, you know, I, I participated in the anti-war protest and again, through part of I, what what Hope um, sort of exposed some of her students to was definitely um, surprised and shocked by what the U.S. was doing, clearly the invasion of Iraq being, uh, have it, you know, that, that Iraq had had nothing to do with 9-11 and, and why was it that we were invading this whole other country? Um, and so upon getting to New York, like, as I said, I, I was interested in, in pursuing a, a career in theater, but again, fairly, fairly quickly, um, got more interested in the Middle East. And um, I remember there was one particular show about um, Guantanamo. And after that, I applied to work as an intern at the Center for Constitutional Rights, which was one of the groups of attorneys that were some of the first to defend the Guantanamo detainees. And you saw, shockingly- well, You saw sorry. a play about, uh, you saw a play about the Guantanamo detainees. I, I did. New York. This was- I did. This was at the Culture Project on the Lower East Side. I, w- I can um, pull up. Try, I was trying to find the details. Um, it, but uh, this inspired me to apply for that internship, which then I was lucky enough to get. Um, and, uh, you know, I was just a sophomore in college. I wasn't doing anything particularly um, impactful, but just it's shocking to me that some of the the names of detainees that I entered into Excel databases, some of those men are still there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and something like 30 or 40. Yeah. Right, right. Many, many fewer than there were at the time. But, but again, just the thought that this was back in 2005 um, and that, you know, that so many years later, they yeah. would, they would still be there. Um, really yeah, and no, no trial and no official charges, uh, as I understand. Um, right. So um, that's uh, getting into the high uh, grass. You know, um, it, it, we could. It, there are about ten topics there we could talk about and go way longer <laughs> than a half an hour. I, I do want to focus on a couple of them, but before we go down that road, I just want to ask you, sort of broadly speaking. The degree to which you think uh, your participation in the theater um, led you in this direction and uh, and and created an interest uh, uh, to, for political um, ideas, because it does seem like a, um, a lot of the work that you have done has maybe been uh, founded on the the work that you did as a performer and as a theater artist before that. Is that a fair statement? I mean, to a certain extent, so I guess I should just clarify, I, I work at a think tank called the Quincy Institute here in DC. I'm um, one of their research fellows for the Middle East. I did my PhD in political science, um, focusing on the, uh, essentially the, the promotion of so-called moderate Islam as sort of a, a strategy that various authoritarian regimes deployed after 9-11 to try to signal their their support for the war on terror, even though often those kinds of policies didn't actually have have much, if any, effect on, on either religious tolerance or countering violent extremism. Um, but before, before that, I, I lived in the Middle East for a few years. I worked as a, a journalist in Egypt. Um, today, January 25th, is actually the anniversary of the Egyptian revolution um, that started in 2011, which of it led to the the downfall of of the then president, um, but as as we know, event you know within a few years, um, the military yeah. was and remains back in control in Egypt. Um, I believe that uh, that came out of uh, releases uh, from WikiLeaks. Am I am I correct about that? The the Arab Spring and, and all that. The Arab Spring came out of WikiLeaks. Yeah, that there were that there were leaks that that caused uh, people in in the countries to understand that there were uh, issues going on that they had not been allowed to understand. Uh, is that um, the- to a certain extent? I mean the 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 self immolation of the Tunisian fruit seller uh, right. at the end of December in 2010, that, that was usually seen as kind of the, the event that then sparked. Yeah. And, and, and that was driven in part by police brutality um, that he yeah. had been um, targeted by this police woman actually, who, who was going after him for um, trying to just eke out a living and he ended up killing himself. Um, but, you know, in Egypt, I think a big part of why we saw the, the protests um, erupt with such violence when they did was there had been a, a sense of inflated expectations that the Egyptian economy had been doing relatively well. Um, it had come through the financial crisis and, and the government kept telling Egyptians just how well everything was going. And yet people weren't 
seeing any of this in their own lives. Mm -hmm. um, I think there may be important parallels here when we hear about how the U.S. stock market, although at the moment it's not doing as well, but it had been doing, you know, it's been going gangbusters all through COVID and everyone's kind of like, why am I not, <laughs> how is the stock market doing so well yeah. when, when so many people are, are unable to work or barely able to, to get by? Um, um, I think so, some of the corruption uh, uh, over there was was revealed through those uh, WikiLeaks documents, though, and I, I think that's part of the reason why the unrest um, uh, was uh, was so in, instantaneous and um, and widespread across the uh, the Arab world. Um, but anyway, that's uh, that's not a necessarily the topic of our conversation. Uh, so um, I just want to circle back around to to the theater one more time. And Anel, um, do you uh, do you feel like that the arts are are carrying their part of the battle in these uh, efforts that um, uh, that I guess you could say are are the purpose of which is to make the world a less corrupt uh, place from a political standpoint uh, or, or have the arts um, abdicated um, their responsibility there, or is it something in between? How do you, how do you see the arts as a, as a player, if at all, in the geopolitical concerns uh, that you, you see um, going on right now? I mean, I, I know that in my own experience that it was it was theater and the arts that really got me interested in in so much of, of what the U.S. was doing in the Middle East. And initially mm. I sort of hoped I think my dream was to go do um, like theater therapy with Iraqi kids. That that was kind of my vision for myself. Mm. And um, and then ultimately I, I moved away from theater and just just focused on the, really the, the journalistic side and, and then the sort of policy side. Um, but I absolutely, you know, things like um, Hope Hines put on a production um, of Antigone, which is about, stand, you know, standing up to uh, an unjust ruler and, and mm -hmm. you know, doing what you think is right, even in the face of death. Um, and that, uh, I was just had a conversation with her. She reminded me that our principal at Jordan High was not terribly pleased with what he saw as sort of uh, a, a production of, of sort of questionable um, political leaning. <laughs> um, but, he, you know, we still put it on. Good. Um, she also, I remember I participated in, in a reading of um, the Lysistrata project about where, you know, women refusing to have sex with their husbands until they end one of the many Greek wars, I forget which one. No. Um, and, you know, those those kinds of things, I think at the time, at least in high school, there weren't, it was it was really the, the theater community, both um, folks at, at Burning Coal and, and I remember other people that, that Hope would bring in that really seemed to me when I was, you know, 14, 15, 16, these were people who were really thinking hard about what was going on in the world in ways that were more creative than than much of what I saw at the time, which was really quite dominated by this this push towards American militarism and that sort of knee jerk reaction after 9/11 that everybody seemed to buy into in a way that I just remember finding um, hard to push back against. I remember being accused of of being anti American and and I would say, well, I I just <laughs> I believe in what I think this country stands for, which is not doing 
things like this, <laughs> killing people on the other side of the world. I, I thought right. we as a country stood for, for better than that. Um, and, and so I just remember again, that, that it was folks in the arts and for me in, in particular in, in the theater scene that, that seemed to be asking those kinds of questions or, or pushing back against this assumed wisdom of, of what the U.S. was doing. It, it felt like that to me at the time, too. Um, I'm not sure it still does, but uh, but I do remember a, a, a play that Hope did. Uh, and you may have been involved in this one. It was a one act that Tony Kushner had written uh, about. Yeah, Dylan, Dylan Bono directed Hope in that. She was a, a classmate of mine mm -hmm. um, and they got the rights to do um, Only We Who Guard the Mystery Will Be Unhappy, which is Laura Bush reading to dead Iraqi children. In heaven. Uh, a little, a little on the nose, hell. yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah. you know, I, I do, um, right, it, it was, the, that was where it was, it was coming from the theater, in my experience, that anyone was, was pushing back and questioning. Um, and although, again, I didn't, I didn't end up ultimately staying in the theater, I think, I think that was part of what attracted me was that sort of questioning, and, and the willingness to push back against these dominant narratives. One of the things that frustrates me about our business, um, and, and the average person wouldn't know this at all, but, um, you know, the, it's very difficult to get the rights to a play like that, which is very topical, as you say, very on point and, and meant, I think, to be heard in that moment. But if you're not a Broadway producer or uh, run one of the big Lort theaters with a multi-million dollar budgets, it's very difficult to pry the rights to those plays <laughs> out of their hands until the moment has long passed. You know, now I would have no trouble getting the, the rights to that play, but I, I talk about them. Um, <laughs> And I said, I I'd like to bring that show Lock, Stock and Barrel to our theater and uh, and run it at Burning Coal. And she said, yeah, great, let's do that. And then when I wrote to the royalties people, they said, no way. Uh, yeah, uh, this, it's not available yet. You know, and, and uh, so we have a lot of those <laughs> kinds of barriers, you know, that we, we face in our industry. Let's uh, switch gears just a little bit. I'd love to hear about the Quincy Institute. What is its uh, reason for existence? What is the purpose of it? Where does it get its funding? that sort of thing? Yeah, so the Quincy Institute launched um, just over two years ago, and, and I came on soon after. Uh, it got attention at the time because it had gotten funding from both sort of the far left side of the political spectrum through um, George Soros's Open Society Foundation and the far right through the, the Koch brothers, uh, the Charles Koch Foundation. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea was that essentially that there was not enough of a space in D.C. for people to push back against American militarism and against the military industrial complex. And that this was actually something that both folks on the far left, you know, anti-war activists, there's there's a, a long tradition um, on that side, but also on the far right and especially sort of among libertarian circles who don't agree with the amount of money that gets spent on our bloated military budget and, and who don't like the amount of sort of the level of U.S. government power that ends up getting aimed at American citizens, for example. So this was seen as um, sort of a, a, a way that these two ends of the political spectrum could, could agree, at least on, on these principles, even though there are many others that, that the far right and far left do not <laughs> agree yeah. on at all. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, we, we remain relatively small, but we were quite involved in, in efforts to 
um, to pressure and, and in help and encourage um, Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan. Obviously, the way that was done um, was not terribly responsible, um, but we very much supported the fact that it did not make sense for the United States to remain, to continue to fight in Afghanistan. Um, at the moment, we're doing a lot of work on China and trying to prevent the, the burgeoning new Cold War with China. Literally, like today at the moment, uh, my, my colleagues, two of my colleagues were on Democracy Now! this morning talking about the, the threat of war with Russia over Ukraine. Um, which is quite alarming. Um, and most of my work at the moment is focused on Yemen. And um, we recently saw attacks uh, aimed at, at U.S. soldiers stationed in the UAE from the Houthi rebels in Yemen. And part of what we're arguing is, well, why is the U.S. supporting the UAE and Saudi Arabia and their devastating war on Yemen such that now U.S. soldiers are targets? Like, how is this in our interest? <laughs> why would we be continuing for why, why are they doing that? Uh, I, I, I've heard uh, a number of people ask that question, but I've yet to hear a logical answer. Do, do you know what the reasoning is behind that? Well, so <clears throat> Yemen, there's a civil war going on in Yemen. The, the internationally recognized government was kicked out back in um, 2014, 2015, and they've been in exile in Riyadh. And they were kicked out by the Houthis, which are a group of Yemenis who get some amount of support from Iran. That's sort of debatable, but they are supported by Iran. Mm -hmm. And the Saudis invaded a Saudi-led coalition, the Saudis, the Emiratis and others. Because um, they invaded. didn't want Iran to get a foothold there? Is that Yes, right? exactly. They were worried about Iran getting, getting a foothold. Um, and what was supposed to have been, you know, a three week long war, as the Saudis described it, is is um, now going to be entering its eighth year in March, devastating 16 million Yemenis on the brink of starvation. Hundreds of thousands of people have been killed. Um, and the U.S. has pursued our sort of uh, long term strategy of supporting Saudi Arabia and the UAE because they are our security partners um, and they're huge uh, purchasers of American weapons um, against Yemen. And so we support this, the, not only the, the devastating airstrikes on civilians, but also the blockade of Yemen. Saudi Arabia has been preventing fuel from reaching Yemeni ports because they don't want the Houthis to be able to have access to it and then to sell it and, and profit in that way. I mean, in general, it's been this, this policy of sort of collective punishment of Yemen. Um, and I mean, the Houthis also do terrible things. I don't, you know, I have friends in Yemen who don't want the Houthis to be in control. And I mean, personally, I, I don't know if I could ever go back to Yemen if, if the Houthis were in control. I certainly don't support them. Um, but I also don't agree with the idea that the U.S. just continues to support and to sell weapons to the Saudis and Emiratis as they completely devastate this country. It's sort of this position of collective punishment. Um, and so when you hear about, you know, three people were killed in the UAE, it is very sad, but it's like, well, hundreds of thousands of people have died in Yemen. So yeah. we just need to be aware of sort of the scale of what we're talking about. There, there are a number of places around the world where we're implementing uh, sanctions um, that are, of course, affecting the government because it weakens them 
but also, but but it weakens them by weakening the the livelihoods and the prospects of their citizens. Uh, Syria is one obvious example of that, and right. Well, and and you think of you know how many decades have we had sanctions against the the regimes in Cuba or Iran, and that never caused those governments to fall. Like, why do we think? imposing you know the de- now now more than decade of sanctions on Venezuela or on Syria mm-hmm. it just immiserates the population and often actually consolidates support for the regime because it's seen as you know this is imposed on us from outside us and versus them yeah exactly exactly yeah. we see that uh, see that all the time uh, here um so um so it sounds like the Quincy Institute is doing uh, good work. It, it sounds like you're um, you're having some success. If you if you were involved, uh, not you personally, but if the institute was involved in the withdrawal from um, Afghanistan, then that certainly is uh, a, a positive. Ultimately, um, I had heard a statistic that the, that there was something like two trillion dollars spent over. 20 years in Afghanistan. And if you do the math on that, it comes out to $230 million a day of American taxpayer dollars that was being spent um, on what turned out to be a completely fruitless effort, I think. Um, and, exactly. and so it, it, that's a, a lot of a lot of money. Um, I guess that money is now <laughs> going to be spent on the Space Force or something like that. Uh, they're certainly not well, giving it back to us. But uh, I, I think the concern is, you know, as Americans have expressed their uh, that everyone is very fed up with these sort of endless wars in the Middle East, mm-hmm. the Pentagon is shifting towards great power competition and, and portraying China as, as the, you know, the new threat that we have to take on. Sure. And I mean, certainly, you know, it's, it is important for, for the U S to, to take China seriously, China is very powerful, and also Russia, um, the other major nuclear armed power in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, in general, I think there's there's kind of a whole generation. Peter Beinart actually recently wrote about this. This generation of Americans who are accustomed to seeing the U.S. as the global superpower, who don't understand, who who have no sort of frame of reference for what it was like when. The USSR was, in fact, a peer competitor of the United States, perhaps never as strong um, economically, but, but you know, nuclear war was possible and, and it, could, it could have been Armageddon. Um, and so that there was, a, there was a whole generation of policymakers who were raised in a context where the U.S. was not preeminent and sort of understood that you have to pick and choose your battles. Obviously, things like the war in Vietnam was not a very good example of, of picking and choosing your battles, but there were other there were other conflicts that were avoided. You think of the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example, um, when the U.S. did in fact have to have to know how to compromise, and that the Americans are not really used to thinking that way anymore because Russia was was so weakened after the fall of the USSR, and China has only recently emerged as as anything close to a peer competitor, and so. This is part of what the Quincy Institute tries to to work on is to to shift some of this, these notions, especially within Washington, D.C. And I think many, many Americans kind of understand this or, you know, are, are aware of the amount of money that gets spent on these things and aren't 
terribly interested in getting involved in more wars. But unfortunately, inside the Beltway, we do have a lot of people who benefit solely from the military industrial complex and are very interested in just keeping the gravy train flowing. And unfortunately, they have a lot of influence on the Hill with members of Congress. Um, this is another big thing that, that we as an organization um, work on is transparency and trying to have um, think tanks and, and various organizations be very upfront about their funding, which is part of why we're very upfront about, you know, we, where we get our money. Um, we don't take any foreign money, whereas a lot of think tanks, unfortunately, in D.C. are very heavily influenced by foreign lobbying. And mm -hmm. I think some of this came out during the Trump administration because it was so blatant. Um, but, uh, but that has not gone away. I mean, a lot of this stuff, um, it, it, it just rose, bubbled to the surface under Trump, but it's, it's just a little bit more discreet now. I'm, uh, I'm reading a book uh, right now by Barry Meyer about the, um, um, the steel dossier. Um, and uh, the, the convolutions in that book are breathtaking. Uh, you know, you're reading about someone who seems to be on one side of an issue in one paragraph, and in the next paragraph, they're on the complete opposite side of the issue. And, and these names keep coming up, these few names keep coming up over and over again uh, in Ukraine uh, and um, yeah. in Russia and, all, and, and in the, uh, Iran. And it's like this very small group of people. This is a, this is a tough question, and maybe it's a Silly one, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is is there a way when when that much power has been accumulated into the hands of that small a number of people? Is there a way out of it that, that doesn't look like a revolution? Well, one thing that's been interesting being in D.C., um, you know, residents of Washington, D.C. don't have representation in Congress. And no. so I, I, I think sometimes everyone else in the country forgets just how much power you do have over your own member of Congress, um, mm -hmm. in particular on, on something like foreign policy, because, you know, the, the, the truism is that elect foreign policy doesn't tend to decide elections. And so if you end up calling your member of Congress about a foreign policy issue, that may be one of the only voices coming from a constituent that, that they actually hear. And especially yeah. if, if you can get some friends to call or, you know, if you're part of an organization and, and you know, obviously it, it helps when, when they get a lot of calls on an issue. Um, but I think sometimes, you know, because we do work, you know, we engage in advocacy and we're in touch with various offices on the Hill, it matters so much to them what their constituents say, because, they are accountable. And again, especially members of Congress whose terms are, are much shorter. Obviously for senators, it depends a bit on your state, you know, if you're from California or a lot of you. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, even, even North Carolina, where I know historically, you know, my parents have said, well, it's no use calling our senators. They're not going to listen to our perspective. Um, but, but again, the, the senator, if, if they hear frequently enough on a specific issue, People, people change their minds, um, which, you know, I, I think that it's, it is just having seen what happens um, from revolutions, especially in the Middle East, mm -hmm. um, and knowing the, the amount of, of violence 
that mm -hmm. tends to follow such political upheaval. I, I don't, I would not call uh, for, for my fellow Americans to, to take up arms and engage in armed yeah. insurrection. No, I no, think, nor would know, I. I just, uh, I wonder if they're, <laughs> if the people who have this uh, leverage over the taxpayer dollars aren't digging a hole that they'll have no way out of um, at some point. I, I, I you know, I, I know I completely agree with you. I'm not for a violent uh, means at all. I just wonder sometimes if, if, if it's not uh, almost inevitable. Um, well, um, Anel, this has uh, been an incredible uh, conversation. I could uh, I could talk with you for hours about it, and I'm sure uh, uh, a lot of our listeners would love to to hear more as well. But one, I want to ask you one last question, uh, if you don't mind, and that is, um, what can? Uh, and I'm going to go back to the arts again, and I don't know how much you've you've had a chance to think about this, but what can the arts do? To, to push us um, toward uh, a more um, egalitarian society where um, for, foreign uh, wars are not uh, the, the, the go-to um, um, position of, of uh, politicians and, and where our tax dollars aren't being spent at a ridiculously high level on unnecessary uh, military buildup and things like that. What, what can we do? What can artists do about that, if anything? Well, it, it was interesting when, when you were saying, you know, expressing your frustration, you know, with trying to get the rights to that Tony Kushner play, you know, soon after it came out. And my, my thought at that was kind of like, well, but but Jerry, you or someone in your circle perhaps could have written another creative response to mm. to the Iraq war. And sure, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a Tony Kushner play. It might not get produced on Broadway, but but it does expand the the scope of the possible. And I think that's that's the contribution of of the arts is sort of encouraging a a mentality and allowing a space for people to imagine what else is possible and and to really question a lot of the the assumptions that when you you know when you're in Washington there's there's so often this sort of idea that well this this is the way things are and we can't do much to change it and you know there's a lot of cynicism understandably i yeah. mean it is there's a lot of reasons to be cynical but but i think that that is the the absolutely precious and and sort of unique contribution that that can come from the arts and from artists is because they do tend to exist in a space that is all about sort of questioning what's possible and questioning what is um so i you know the extent to which that can then influence policy i mean to a certain extent i think it doesn't necessarily have to because you know policy does get bogged down in the in in sort of the the mud of reality but but i think in some ways that that preserving that space and and people who who are unfettered by those sorts of considerations is terribly important um and then and then it's just a question of of trying to to bridge the two so uh, to summarize it sounds like you're saying if we don't like the stories that are being told uh, we should tell tell new ones uh, yeah, yeah. I, do, I, I do think I'll, I'll I'll entitle this podcast "The Mud of Reality." Though I think I, 
Anil, thank you so much. That was really fantastic. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, I wish you the best. Um, and uh, uh, tell DC uh, we're mad as hell and we're not going to take. No, don't tell them that. Uh, but uh, but uh, <laughs> well, no, you tell them. Okay, call, everyone, point. call your members of Congress. <laughs> yeah, it's a deal. All right, thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, Nell Shilan from the Quincy Institute, uh, uh, talking to friends back home. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Jerry. It was a real honor. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Our production of Art by Yasmina Reza will run from January 27th to February 13th. For tickets and information, visit us at burningcoal.org or give us a call at 919-834-4001. Burning Coal's production of Art is sponsored by The Classical Station. Listen at 89.7 FM or online at theclassicalstation.org.